Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepard. I'm a mastering engineer, and I run the production advice website aimed at helping you get the best results recording, mixing, and mastering your music. This episode, the inspiration comes from a video by Dan Worrell, who has a fantastic YouTube channel. I highly recommend it. He's been a guest on the show before. And it was a follow-up to a video that he did about loudness, which I highly recommend. And in it, he was talking about the specific case of... DJs and music for clubs. And the title of his video was deliberately, I think, somewhat tongue in cheek, uh, and was DJs want loud masters because DJs are idiots. Um, and as I say, I think Dan's original title was tongue in cheek, and he understands that this is, there's more to this topic than simply DJs not understanding about loudness and thinking that everything should be super loud. But in the video, he raised three justifications, if you like for loud masters for club music, namely that you need to get it loud enough simply because there isn't enough gain in the PA system in a club to, to get the desired emotional impact on the dance floor. DJs want loud music because they want consistency between different songs. And he had something to say there about the gain structure of a DJ mixer, which we're gonna get into. He also made the point that DJs say that loudness is needed for punch and impact and the right sound, particularly in certain genres. So we're going to talk about all of these points and a lot more in this episode. And to help me, my guest is Joe Caithness, who is the perfect person to discuss this because he is a DJ and a mastering engineer. Joe, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. Can you give us a kind of quick introduction to how you became a mastering engineer and also how you became a DJ and, and how those two things interact? Yeah, sure. So um, I've been working full-time mastering now for about... 15 years. So I'm 30, almost 36 now. I started when I was 21. Um, and I started around the same time uh, where I was developing as a sort of musician and a DJ. So I actually started doing engineering fairly early on. I didn't have like a, a sort of career as a musician or a live sound or mixing person. I sort of went straight into mastering and um, a lot of what I started doing with mastering tied into what I was doing at the time when it came to uh, the world of music I was enjoying, which was club DJing. So, of course, when you turn 18, you can go to clubs, you start getting into like new underground music and experiencing that sound and experiencing what clubs are like and how they differ and eventually getting into DJing. About three years into being a DJ, I became a mastering engineer. So my listening skills and my uh, thought processes developed at the same time. I should say I'm also a guitarist. I've played in lots of punk bands and done a lot of live music. But at the time where I was sort of becoming a serious adult, um, the two things were very much uh, aligned with each other. So as I was learning gain structure within a DAW and learning about gain structure within like an analog uh, loopback in a mastering studio, I was also learning about gain structure on DJ mixers and in clubs. And both of those things were at a time where both of those uh, two worlds were expanding greatly with, uh, you know, digital technology and in the box processing and CDJs and all that kind of stuff. So I was sort of lucky to be at the flashpoint of two big changes in the technology in those two worlds. So I kind of have a, a unique view of where we're at now um, based on that experience. That's really interesting. So did you start out DJing on vinyl or did you jump straight into CD and then later digital files? I started on vinyl because, believe it or not, vinyl was cheaper, easier and quicker than doing anything digital. 
for the majority of the 2000s. The big change was when the CDJ-1000 Mark III came in, which was the time where Pioneer basically took over, Pioneer DJ, I should say, because they are different companies, um, basically took over the club standards and sort of wiped everybody else out. And it was because with the Mark III, that was where DJs who were used to all of the tactile um, interaction of vinyl kind of felt that there was finally a, a jumping off point where they could stop using vinyl and that's where people stopped pressing records for DJs and a lot of the small independent record shops sort of ceased to cease to exist and then you have things like Beatport and uh, later on Bandcamp and all those kind of platforms. So I didn't start using digital DJ technology until I was literally in the club. It seems strange to say this now because now there are lots of um, like home practicing systems that have the same layout. But at the time, it was I was playing in a club to 200, 300 people on vinyl with a big bag of records, and I started literally burning CDs of some songs which either you know producers had given me or weren't released on vinyl or were exclusives. And I would just try using the CDJs live in the club on a four-channel mixer. So I learned to use CDJ 1000 Mark III's live while mixing um so there was no practice involved it was like there was a point where um the local clubs had maybe one or two cdjs and they were kind of like everyone would be like oh this is kind of exciting and then there was a point where they were in every room so you could you could rely on bringing some of your tracks on cds and then people sort of slowly moved over and then there was technology later on which will come on to like like time code vinyl and this whole nightmare of the sort of wild west of uh, digital audio coming in a uh, sort of properly i was mixing vinyl and then adding cds as a third and fourth channel um in the club without any real experience just literally messing with it in my headphones so there's a bunch of things that kind of occur to me out of that and one of them is that we should probably pause for a minute and just try and give an overview if we can of what a typical dj setup might be um now i know that this in itself is very complicated because there are so many different permutations and combinations there are people you know working off of a laptop and then there are people in clubs with a, a load of hardware but can you give us just a sort of a simple overview of what a standard club dj setup might look like and how the different elements of it connect together yeah so of course a dj is literally anybody who plays music at people in any sort of circumstance um but the main components that you'll always have is a player or several players and something to mix those together. So even if you're just playing on the radio and you've got tracks queued up on different um, players, you know, if you're you're on Six Music or something like that, all of this stuff applies. And the vast majority of these setups are actually the same technology, almost always Pioneer DJ technology. And the actual way it's rooted will be different for different scenarios. Where it comes to club setups, what you'll almost always have um, is this literally this setup you'll have two a cdj 2000 2000 nexus twos and you'll have a uh, a pioneer djm 950 or a 750 if it's a smaller club and they don't want all the extra stuff and those all connect up using ethernet and can also be connected through um, spdif and of course can be analog as well they can be all of those things at once um, and the mixer itself has an output and that will go to wherever it goes to, whether it's um, you know a streaming uh, recorder or a uh, a mixer for the actual club itself for install or to a, a PA that you've set up. But generally, you've got lots of sources, a mixer, and that goes somewhere. And the ninety five percent at least 
of clubs uh, for specifically nightclubs for dance music will have exactly that set up. And now the CDJ 3000 has um, was sort of halted by COVID and everything. Um, but now you might find a couple of CDJ 3000s in there, or if you request it, you might have two CDJs and two vinyl decks, for example. Um, but generally speaking, you'll have those two players within the Pioneer, what, what they call Pro DJ Link system, where you have one USB stick and it distributes that data around all of the equipment via Ethernet, basically with a, with a router. And all of the stuff that's sitting in front of you is all connected to one brain, essentially. So you basically got one fixed system with one stereo output. But within that fixed system, you've got billions of, of variants. Right. So in practical terms for mixing a DJ set, you basically, let's say you've got four, you mentioned two CDJs and a, two vinyl turntables. So you queue up the next song you want to play on either a CDJ or a turntable while the other one is playing. And at some point, either a crossfade or a rapid transition between them, you know, there's other stuff that can be done like effects and using samplers and all the rest of it. But in essence, you're just transitioning from one source to another. And that could be a choice of four sources. And they are beat locked to each other so they stay in tempo for the purposes of the transition. Is that fair to say? Yeah, so the the beat locking thing is controversial. Um <laughs> I won't go into that too much, but essentially yeah, you you'd you'd manually beat match them, uh cue them up and you'd go from one track to the other and yeah, like you say there's there's a million different ways to do that, but essentially you've got one audio file then you've got another audio file and you go from one to the other with a bit in the middle where they're both playing. So in the context of um, the actual uh, engineering side of things, you've got two mastered, usually WAVs or MP3s, and then you start on one, end on the other, and in the middle there's something that's a combination of the two playing at the same time. Cool. Okay, and... Since you know the, the the focus of this is going to be loudness, I think it's time to to think back to to Dan's video because the the reason that this episode is happening really is that after Dan's uh, YouTube video, I think I shared it probably on social media, and we got chatting um, in the in the messages on Facebook about all of this. And, you know, Joe was somewhat annoyed by Dan's title. You know, clearly it was tongue in cheek, but. Joe's perspective on this, understanding both the mastering and the DJ worlds, is that it's not just as simple as old DJs want everything super, super loud. So let's kind of dig into each of the points that Dan made in his video. The first one was that extreme loudness is needed simply to get enough level in the club. And Dan's pushback against that was, well, it's a PA system, for heaven's sake, with massive power amplifiers and huge bass bins. How could you possibly not have enough gain? And the possible answer to that is noise regulations. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when they came in, but certainly these days there are very heavy penalties on clubs and venues that annoy the neighbours by playing music that is too loud, too late at night for too long. And that's not something that a DJ turning up to a club has any control of. In fact, a DJ turning up to a club probably doesn't have much control over anything. We could dig into that as well. But the, you know, the gain for the amplifiers, let's say, which is the final dictator of what the level in the club is going to be, is probably in a locked cabinet somewhere. And the person with the key probably isn't even on site. Um, that's my understanding of it. So that what happens is that the clubs, having been bitten in the past by people coming along and playing stuff that is too loud, will have set up the maximum output level of their rig 
so that even if a DJ comes and redlines everything, it's not going to break the noise regulations. Um, and therefore, it's really important that everything going in is super loud so that those final levels can be achieved. I think that's the logic of the argument, uh, Joe. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong and, and let me know what you think about that logic and how that actually relates to the real world in your experience. Yeah, so there's kind of... One of the things about the video um, that I think I read in the comments quite a few people mentioned is this idea of um, just change the amp. Whereas you can kind of think of a club system um, as more like a massive hi-fi or a massive guitar amp or something that everything you play through goes through, but you have no control over the dials of it. You only have control over the sound of what's coming out of the mixer. The club will be set for, yeah, things like noise regulations, but also set for um, the levels that the club have designed it for. They, they will design it for certain genres of music. They will design it for uh, maybe dual purpose. So I'm thinking of a club in Nottingham that is um, primarily a nightclub, but it's also sometimes used as the second stage for live music. So they will have um, a setup that's suitable for both of those things, but it might have a bias towards one thing. And that will determine what type of speakers they have, um, where they put the tops, for example, um, where they put the bass bins. And that will also feed back on how um, the amps are set up and what sort of loudness you can achieve and where you can achieve it. Where, you know, can you achieve certain loudness on the main dance floor area? Are, are you, you know, is it playing over two floors? There's, it's such a complicated signal path. It's, it's mind blowing. You know, I don't really fully understand it despite having stood next to these for um, almost decades now and looked at them. And they all have their own dynamic controllers in them as well. So they'll have multiband uh, compression limiting crossovers. And of course, all these things affect the overall sound and the levels that you can achieve. So if you're playing in, in clubs with um, these sorts of setups and literally, you know, brands of PAs because they have a signature sound, the production and the DJ uh, style evolves with those and they feed back on each other. And of course, part of the production and the presentation of the music is the mastering. So it's not so much that it's a constant sort of um, snake eating its tail, loudness war going on and on and on kind of thing. It's more that the, the, the sound of the genres and the arrangements and the DJ styles and the sound of the clubs are all one kind of symbiotic relationship. Um, it's not just like DJ turns up and battles with the venue. It's more that the venue will have certain ideas about what they want to present to their, their clients on the dance floor. And the DJs will will work with that and work around it. And of course, things these things are always in flux. So as far as um, what DJs want for the sound within a club, it's more about um, practicality. I mean, one really big point about this, which I think some people might find slightly strange if you're from a you're not from a, a dance music um, nightclub background, is that dance music, before everything else, is functional. You're not, you're not making art first. You're making functional audio, and then it's either good or bad for, for various subjective reasons. So you've got to understand that the most important thing is that people continue to dance and have a good time and feel happy or whatever they want to feel. Um, and the music is very loud and overwhelming in a nightclub and really that's the most important thing djs will literally throw good songs away if they sound bad because it's all very good 
you know, on a on a CD album, you might get like an interlude or a bonus track, or it's a compilation. You think, oh, you know, this was this was off their demo, so you, you kind of it doesn't sound quite as good. But I appreciate this is included on this album, for example. Whereas on a dance floor, that's just pointless. You can't do it if you if something doesn't sound right, you just won't play it. I've I've all DJs will tell you this, but I've I've mixed very quickly out of tracks when I play them in a in a club and realise that they don't sound right. So it really is life or death for a DJ to have um, a consistent sound that could be loudness or or levels of bass or whatever or sound of vocals it could be anything but DJs understand what they're trying to achieve and how we pick uh, tracks and how we present them and, and how we choose you know the the mastered sound of them etc is very much related to the scenarios we find ourselves in in clubs just turning up with a USB stick and there being you know potentially hundreds of people staring at you who want to dance so that's kind of a, a more pragmatic look at it. Yeah, and I think that that's, that's a fair comment. In practical terms, I mean, in my experience, I would say the most dynamic club music, dance music, EDM that I have mastered and that I see out there in the world is probably down at the kind of minus 14 LUFS level. I'm thinking, you know, I don't know, 90s techno, that kind of stuff. Um, fairly, you know, not the kind of really aggressive stuff um and before the loudness wars really ramped up um and i mean there are plenty of current releases that are those kind of levels as well but i would say that's at the the low kind of end and then you push up to you know the, the loudest stuff i mean there's some that's just insane up at minus two lofs or whatever where it's it's you know more about kind of noise as a creative statement rather than necessarily traditional dance music i guess or club music but you know something like skrillex for example um plenty of modern releases could be up at minus six or even minus four lufs so you've got a difference there of about i guess 10 to 12 db do you think those numbers are fair do you want to kind of add any caveats to that yeah i mean of course um club music or dance music whatever you want to call it is there's every extreme you could possibly imagine out there in the world. And there's, there's also things like, you know, regional differences and and those things are also tied into stuff like the equipment in the club. The, the problem is that, um, like you say, there is, there's the sort of noise as a statement stuff and that bleeds into actual club music. Um, and then those aesthetics begin to influence um more functional club music as well as the sort of like you know more meant to be played on tiktok or on youtube or whatever but as a sort of electronic music style um and i think that's where a lot of the issues come from is and, and you to be honest you can't really blame people these days considering the nightclubs were closed for two two and a half years or so the aesthetic of uh quote-unquote dance music and actual functional dance music are drifting further and further apart because people haven't been able to do that sort of stuff I was talking about, which is, you know, playing something out on a system and realizing that it doesn't work. If you're just playing at home on your earbuds or you're just practicing on your little DJ controller or playing at a you know, pirate studio or something to your mates, that stuff might not become quite as evident. And then you will get used to those, those sounds of those incredibly pushed, um, noisy, you know, just sort of blown out on purpose type things. So I'm not really much of a um, crusader for loudness control or sort of anti-loudness wars. I'm quite agnostic about it. But 
there is an element of of wonkiness to this that is is quite a modern problem. Um, I mean, we can go on to talk about this a bit more as well, but the the other problem as far as people picking tracks for DJing, and then that feeds back to what Mastering Engineers are asked to do, is that the platforms that you would um, audition tracks on vary from very, very tightly uh, loudness normalized to completely Wild West. Um, and depending on where you're listening to tracks, and it could even be that you've got Beatport open in one tab, Spotify open in another tab, Bandcamp open in another tab, on a Friday night looking for the, the latest tracks before you go out and play. And the way that those would be presented to you, wild. Like, you know, we're, we're talking about, yeah, you know, between minus 14 or less all the way up to the insane numbers of, you know, minus four, minus, minus two, et cetera. So there is a real problem with... Uh, DJ selection um, and loudness, and of course, that will then influence what people are hearing uh, and expecting to hear in clubs. And I think that is kind of one of the points that um, maybe people were saying on Dan's original video was that. But there's an expectation to, for us to meet this sort of stuff, and it really is a kind of yes and no. There is, but it's quite wonky these days what people, uh, you know, how they choose their music. Back in the the days of record shops, you would audition stuff in the record shop and over the PA in the shop or on headphones, and the the normalization would be just the way that it's mastered. Whereas now you've got, yeah, like I say, it really wild levels of auditioning levels, and I think that that has changed the aesthetic, possibly you know negatively in my opinion. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, so I want to get on to you know we're we're talking a lot about the the need from a DJ's perspective to have consistency between songs um, that they're going to play out. And I completely understand that, you know, that makes perfect sense. You want musical consistency and you want a degree of tonal consistency. I want to talk about in more detail why that is such a challenge because lots of people listening to this and I, prior to our conversations, would think, well, hang on, it's, it's being played through a mixer. Every channel in the mixer has a gain pot where I can adjust the loudness of what's coming in. So I just have an idea in my head. Okay, here's my kind of average level for this set. This is a loud tune. I'm going to have to turn it down a bit. This is a quiet track. I'm going to turn it up a little bit. You know, why is this such a problem? Um, and I think Dan maybe made a, a you know, a, a joking comment about the, you know, the inability of DJs to make that kind of adjustment. And I know there's a lot of technical issues that kind of relate to that, some of which I was quite shocked by. Um, so we're going to dig into that. But just before we get into the technicalities of that, if we just take it as read for a minute that that's not quite as simple as it might seem from a non-DJing perspective, what would you say as a kind of practical, let's say you've got a set that, you know, most of the stuff in it is averaging minus eight, minus 10 LUFS at the loud sections. How much quieter than that would a song have to be before that's a, a kind of a practical problem for you yeah so this is where we get into the practicalities of different sorts of loudness and um level versus loudness as a, you know as opposed to peak levels and you know what we would now mostly describe as lufs sort of crest of the sound if you're mixing uh modern music which has had um various amounts of compression dynamic processing uh on individual buses and then that's sort of already quite a controlled chunk before you get to the mastering and then that's re-processed uh, um, to get to the level that they want. You've got like a, a fairly thick, consistent sound. Now, if you're playing um, 
like I do, sort of modern versions of old music and you want to play some of the old stuff, say, for example, 80s or 90s, that music in the uh, production and arrangement has had completely different type of processing. So the peak to crest ratio, for example, is completely different um, because a lot of the time these will just be the original recordings to like DAT or tape or whatever, and then re-uploaded, or there'll be rips from vinyl, and the vinyl itself could be very, very dynamic in in the peak levels um, as well as the um, the actual arrangement itself. So if you've got a, a set where you're consistently um, at good gain and you're playing stuff that's, you know, minus 10, sort of not like super crushed, but you're playing... But British dance music generally has a lot of bass and a lot of sparse drums uh, and, and vocals and MCs and stuff. So you can't go mad loud with that stuff because it just sounds wrong. Um, but you can get fairly loud uh, if the production is is well gain staged and people have used you know compression limiting, soft clipping, etc. to get a good chunky sound before they get to it. If you were sitting at that level, you're three tracks in and someone really, you know, the dance floor, say for example, really responds to a certain type of bass sound. You think, ah, I'm going to play this old track. People will love this. I'll pull this from the archive. You go onto your USB, you pick up the track, you get the track up to the same sort of, uh, sort of RMS crest level. And then suddenly you're peaking the meter because the, there's no peak control whatsoever on that track. So you're going right up, um, you know, I've done it up to like 6 dBs of, of peak level change. So where you were previously at a good level for the club, you know, where everyone wants to be, where the, the sound person's happy with that, um, you suddenly try to play an old track and you think, shit, I need to go down in level uh, quickly to play this track, or I just can't play this track, or I'm going to play the track and then I'm going to fiddle with the EQ on the mixer. And then you might get like a weird thing where the kick drum's really loud, but the bass line isn't. And you kind of have to make these split second decisions about doing that. And you, and you have to decide whether it's worth compromising on the loudness in the set, or are you going to let it clip? Like, what are you going to do? Are you going to, are you going to try and do some rough EQ? And those decisions can, they can be brilliant, you know, moves if you're good at doing it and you're good at improvising um, in this sense, or it can actually be a total buzzkill. Um, and, you know, people will hear the difference and, you know, just stuff like kick drum transients. You could be playing new stuff where it's all very controlled and um, it's had a bit of limiting and stuff on it. Uh, and then you might play an old track where, the, you know, the top end of the kick drum was never really meant to be played over these new, very, very bright systems. And it just suddenly sounds like an ice pick and the dance floor reacts to that. Furthermore, you've got the issue of, um, yes, you're playing at a consistent level and you've got gain pot to set it at that point. But the second you do anything to the audio, as we know, especially with stuff that's hard limited, the peak level suddenly changes and you've got three, at least three EQs plus a filter plus effects on top of the um, the mastered file times two, possibly four of that going into the output, uh, the master output of the mixer. So yes, you do have lots of gain, but within the space of say, for example, an hour's set, the actual peak level could be 12 dBs you know, crazy stuff uh, going up and down in that point. So you need to have some consistent sort of chunk base level of your mix um, to be able to achieve those changes and to be able to think, oh, you know what? Uh, people are really enjoying this sort of dubby sound. So the next track, as it comes out, I'm going to put like a, um, what they call the spiral effect on the mixer, which is a sort of filtered um, tape echo type sound that you can, you can feed back into itself. And of course that builds up insane peak levels. 
Um, and if you've got wild levels times four plus that on top, you are doing really crazy stuff to the game. Um, so it's not really that DJs are looking to just press up to red line and then pull it back a little bit and then just keep everything just below the red line. You've got um, you've got gain variants of you know equivalent of something like a guitar player playing into an amp. You know, you play into a Marshall. Uh, JCM 800 and you sort of play softly you get this very very clean sound if you play it hard you get this big saturated you know crazy sound and then you might have four pedals before that and guitarists have to really think about that um, and then that's being mic'd and that's going downstream and I think that's how DJs think about gain structure as well it's like what are the potential possibilities for this music you know this already mastered music uh, and then maybe this this vinyl rip that I've got or even this vinyl record which I'm playing off a deck so it's not just level you know drop a track and it plays at a level and then you drop another track and it plays at that level you've got wild differences peaks and troughs going throughout and that's why people um might want to go for like a consistent genre uh like sound uh mastered sound and when i think djs are asking for quote-unquote loud masters i think what they mean is uh they want masters that suit the loudness that they need to achieve their sort of performance if that makes sense yeah, it does. And, there, and there's lots of interesting points in what you were just saying there. I mean, you know, one of them, I think, is I'm not sure how many uh, non-DJ music fans appreciate the extent to which a DJ set is improvised in that way that you suggested. You know, I mean, back in the day, you were obviously limited by what was in the in the box of vinyl that you had with you. Whereas these days, you, you know, uh, you can pull almost anything you want to play from an online archive or from a massive USB drive that you might have. So that does introduce this massive extra scope. And that, of course, relates to Pioneer's record box system, which we want to, I want to talk about next. But just before we get to that, I'm going to kind of uh, push back slightly against what you're saying, because what you're describing there with, you know, you've got a mastered track, it's been heavily limited, so you could put some effects on it. That could easily give you an extra 3 dB of, of peak level. Then you mix that in with another track that also has effects on it, even if it's just a, you know, like you say, some kind of low filter as we all know filtering out eq can sometimes cause an increase in peak levels because it messes with the phase response of the original signal so if you've got two signals with an extra 3 db of peak added to them and it's unlikely that those will add together to actually create literally 6 db but let's say for the sake of argument you've got 6 db available to me as an engineer my thinking is well if i want to have the flexibility in my set to be able to play that mix of genres I'm actually going to give myself, like you say, 12 dB of peak headroom to make sure that I'm never going to unexpectedly clip the mixer. And therefore, I'm going to gain down all the super loud stuff to, to fit that kind of level where I've got 12 dB of peak headroom available to me. And 12 dB of peak headroom, to my mind, should be plenty to bring up even a really quiet 80s track especially because applying effects and extra processing to stuff that hasn't been heavily peak limited doesn't usually have nearly such a big influence on the peak level. So it feels like to me, okay, worst case, one of those quiet tracks, I'm going to bring it up. And then if I add some, some crazy filtering, you know, maybe it will kind of hit the limiter a few times, but that's not the end of the world. Am I wrong about that? Is, is there something I'm not understanding there? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that is how I DJ when I'm playing on my own. Now, that's the big thing. So let me give you uh, two examples that are very relevant. So tomorrow, I've got a set. I'm playing at a, uh, like a 90s house old school set in a cave 
literally in a cave under the road in Nottingham at 1am. And then on Saturday night, I'm playing uh, all night, literally all night, uh, on my own in a big uh, like food and beer hall thing. And that's, I play all different genres of music and it changes throughout the night. Scenario that I find myself in, half five on Saturday night when I come and set my laptop up and I have my own system and it's all one thing and it's literally I choose the gain going into the speakers um, is very different to the situation that I'll find myself in at, uh, you know, five minutes to one on, on Friday night. What I'll find myself in on five minutes on Friday night is DJs having been having played all night, the mix are being set a certain way, and I will need to take over from the previous DJ and I will need to play into the next DJ, probably without any stop of, well, especially no stop of audio, but probably potentially without um, actually stopping the music. You know, whether or not you mix directly out of the last DJ set is your choice. You don't have to, you can. Um, and what I will see when I turn up to the decks um, is levels set how it's worked throughout the night. So by the time I come to play my set, there will be no scope for me to change anything as far as the master levels of the system itself, because I will then spend the first 10 minutes of my set gain staging, which will potentially make everybody go to the smoking area. That's the realistic scenario that you find yourself in. On Saturday, I will do exactly what you say. I will set my levels very conservatively, knowing that I'm going to start by playing 70s disco, and I'll probably end by playing some modern bootlegs um, of house tracks, which are at city levels, you know, off band camp, possibly home mastered. And I will know that because I know the journey and I know what I'm going to do. Whereas when you rock up to a club to play like an artist set, as in you've been booked by name to play for an hour and people are expecting you to play, you will need to play directly out of the last DJ. And that is kind of the problem. Um, you can't You can't zero a DJ mixer in the same way that you can zero a digital live mixer, for example, between two different gigs at the same venue. Um, and that is one of the, the issues. Your suggestion is exactly what um, should happen. And if you were putting together a night and every all the DJs were experienced and you had a good relationship with the venue and the person doing the sound, you would do exactly that. And people do that um, for maybe events where there's a bit more sartorial control over that stuff. But practically speaking, that's not what most DJs who, you know, are holding their USB, um, nervously trying to stop hyperventilating with their headphones around their the necks, looking at the crowd of people dancing who are then staring at you as you walk between the decks are going to experience. That's really nicely put. Um, you know, I mean, that that's, that's regrettable, but that is completely understandable. Um, and actually... I think this is just a small point, really, but something that we, we talked about prior to recording this episode is just, you mentioned in there, you know, where you've got a good relationship with the club, where, you know, there's some kind of communication going on. Um, and you were saying that, again, in the real world, in some clubs, that's going to be the case. You know, you can talk, there's going to be a sound man who you can talk to. You can, if you're the first DJ on, you can set the gain structure up as you like. Maybe he'll even tweak the amps a little bit for you so you've got a little bit of extra headroom in comparison to the guy who came the night before because he knows you and trusts you that you're not going to mess them up in terms of the, the noise regulations. On the other hand, there are a bunch of venues where there is no sound man. You know, you'd be lucky to even get a PA 
I think you you mentioned one venue that was maybe I imagined this, but it was mostly mirrors. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's do you can you just yeah paint a picture for us of kind of it's much more like the punk aesthetic, isn't it? Where you'd you know if you're doing a gig, you just turn up and you'd have yeah, ramps rock, and rock up and make so it work and provide drums and just yeah yeah exactly that. I mean the the um, a really good analogy. I mean I use these analogies um, to try and widen stuff because. I also am a live musician as well as a DJ, like a lot of DJs are. Um, but you will have found yourself in a situation where you're playing a gig, um, you're about to play or you're sound checking and you realise that the sound is massively compromised, but everything else is great. The vibes are good. You're on tour. People have turned up to watch you. You know, you're like, I really, I really need to make this work. Whatever happens, the show must go on. This must work. And then you have a sound engineer who is a complete nightmare we've all been there um and is almost passive aggressively attacking you for trying to achieve the sound that you and your crowd want so the relationship is that you're on stage and the crowd there and they, they want to hear it and they want to experience it and they want to be moved you know with your music because they're excited by it whereas the, the person doing the sound couldn't care less and you will have to make compromise i mean we've all been there where we've turned up our guitar amps and they've turned it straight back down or you know you've put a pedal on and then you can suddenly hear that they've turned the PA down. And it's like, no, I really wanted to do that thing. Like, please stop changing my art. Um, and DJs essentially do come into the same sort of issues. The The room that I was explaining uh, to you is actually where I'm playing on Saturday, which is a, um, it's a converted uh, market storage space. So it's uh, basically like a, what would originally have been a, a massive fridge, basically for fruits and vegetables to be sitting in and then moved out to be sold at a market. But it's now this huge, long food market where I sit at one side on a little DJ booth in the corner, and there's PAs that go all the way around, and there's PAs that play outside. I have no monitoring, but I'm expected to play nonstop for five hours and to keep adjusting the music depending on what's happening. If people start to dance, I you know, play more dance music. If it's, um, if it's kind of subtle and low, I might play something that's a bit darker sounding or maybe slightly softer vocal. And I need to be able to make that sound work in a room which is essentially a massive fridge so you know those compromises affect um how you set your mixer and they also affect the songs that you choose and how you mix and, and where you go with stuff and like you say i think people don't understand often with djing that it is it's improvised you're not you're not playing a playlist you are responding to all of these outside things and people are expecting you to fill their ears with something which is suitable for them um, and that's where a lot of the compromises come from. Yeah, it's really interesting. So the next thing I mentioned, Record Box. Um, and I think we need to talk to that because it it leads into another massive challenge that DJs, obviously, especially up-and-coming DJs, face that I wasn't aware of and that, to me, just seems completely crazy. I mean, and I just want to remind everybody listening at this point, one of the things you mentioned there was the fact that you know, a lot of this is about peak level. I'm in mastering where you obviously are also mastering. Normally, we don't care too much about peak level unless it means we're hitting a limiter too hard for the creative purposes of what we're trying to achieve. It's all about loudness. But on a DJ mixer, it's all about peak level because that's what's going to trigger the limiter or cause clipping. And that, you know, how close you are to the peak headroom of the system is determined, like you say, by probably by the previous DJ Um the person who played before you so for that reason dj software and dj mixers as far as i'm aware the vast majority of them only display peak level and as everybody who's a regular listener to this show 
knows peak level is a really poor way to judge loudness. And, you know, as a result of this, you run into all of these problems. So there's that whole issue. I would love it if DJ software and hardware started showing even RMS, doesn't have to be LUFS, but just something that relates to the loudness as well as the peak so that DJs can start to see the the results of this stuff and and kind of adjust how they work to be more like the ideal situation that you talked about. Because if all DJs moved in that direction, it would make it easier for everyone to get great results, just like in normal mastering, whereas if everybody moved more towards sane mastering levels, it would allow everybody to be more creative and, and freer in the choices that they make rather, feeling, rather than feeling pressurized into loudness. But yes, there's this other issue, which is in a modern system, it's your choice of songs isn't limited by the box of vinyl or the box of CDs that you have, or even by the files on the USB drive because of uh, Rekordbox. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what Rekordbox is and what the difference between how that, how that is different for somebody practicing at home versus playing out in a club. Yeah, so just a quick synopsis of what Rekordbox is. Rekordbox is the the brain basically behind Pioneer's DJ system. It's the the way in which you organize your music, a management software that can pick files from anywhere pretty much. So it can be subscription services, it can be a USB, it can be an external hard drive. Uh, you don't have to have it all connected up for it to store all its data. It's it's a management software that works offline but stores lots of different data, um, including gain, which we'll come on to. Um, but it, uh, metadata, uh, loop points, uh, cue points, uh, anything that you put on there. It also stores your settings that you like for performance. So you can set up how you like to perform and how you like things like CDJs to work, uh, the start and stop buttons, how they work, the mode the CDJ plays in, uh, the way it dis- displays time, the way it displays... Um, the waveform, which again is, we'll come on to. So it, Rekordbox is like this in humongous it's, uh, ecosystem. It's like bigger than a DAW. It's like the scope of it is bigger than, say, something like Pro Tools is to a producer. It's, it's so vast and it has so many different modes and so many different ways to connect it. And there's Rekordbox Library, which is the original version, which is how you would prepare your tracks on the USB stick to then go and take to play on a club system. Um, as well as there being the record box perform mode, and they're both slightly different, but they're also the same. It's 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 really hard to explain to somebody who uh, who isn't a DJ and hasn't hasn't been sort of forced into uh, having to learn this stuff because it's in front of them and there's loud music playing. Um, and also there's record box on the players themselves. So all of the individual players, which are basically nowadays massive iPads with um, start and stop buttons on them, uh, they have their own version of record box on them as as well. And every single player uh, has its own version that can see certain things, can't see other things, can call, you know, X amount of loops, can call X amount of hot cues. But the main thing that it doesn't transfer, which is one of the points that we wanted to discuss, is it doesn't transfer information about normalizing loudness, whereas the performance mode does. So if you're at home and you're practicing on a little controller on a laptop, which is how almost everybody will begin learning. Rekordbox, by default, scans the LUFS and gives you a recommended gain, which you can then change and save that gain setting. So if I'm playing like I will be on Saturday off my laptop through my 
DDJ 800, which is like a sort of controller, two-channel controller thing, I will be playing without adjusting the gain much because I already know that record boxes scanned and give me gain that I like. And if I don't like the gain, I will adjust it and save it. And next time I recall that track, it will know that gain setting. Whereas the export mode, which is the other main version of Rekordbox, does not have this information. So when you go to play on a club Rekordbox system, so you've gone from Rekordbox export mode to Rekordbox CDJ 2000 Nexus 2 Rekordbox mode, that information is not carried across. So you could be playing a set where you're playing five tracks you've got off Beatport, three tracks that you've been sent by a DJ, which are in various stages of home mastering or just, you know, just been limited, and two vinyl mixes. And when you're playing them at home, Rekordbox will quite competently match the the sort of loudness, um, the L, you know, the Luff's loudness of it, if you like, the Crest loudness. Um, and you'll think, okay, this is cool. This, this old techno track with this new techno track sounds great. When you go to play that in a club, you might find that there's literally six dBs of difference uh, because you're playing unnormalized vinyl rip, for example, and then you're playing this brand new track you bought literally an hour before you went on stage off Beatport. And that's one of the things that we've we've discussed is one of the, the ways to make a lot of these problems go away would be to give the DJs an option. And like I say, the, the options are saved on your USB. So you could choose to opt out of this with one click. Um, like we can choose the color of the waveforms and the, you know, that will, that will be on our USB and it will come on the players. But the game thing is, is just doesn't travel across the systems. Now, I don't know if Pioneer intend to add that at some point, but it is a big sort of cognitive dissonance, um, as far as, you know, practicing on your controller, your set's perfect, you, all your tracks there, you go into a club and then the gain is wild compared to what it is at home. Yeah, and, and that's the bit that I mentioned earlier that I was kind of shocked about to discover. And I've experienced this myself in the sense that, you know, when we were talking, I downloaded the demo of Rekordbox to try and get a sense of this stuff myself and did some experiments. As far as I can tell, it is actually using LUFS. It's doing it by default. And I forget what I did. I played, I think, a Gold Frap tune followed by a Paul Oakenfold 90s U2 remix or something. Um, and they matched pretty well. And, you know, I could, I could in terms of loudness... Um, no problem with clipping, no problem with anything. I, I was completely happy with it. You know, I've not attempted to go out and play that in a DJ set, but even if you went to a practice room, it's no wonder that DJs think that everything needs to be loud in the situation that you're describing, you know, especially up and coming DJs, you know, people getting started in the, in the, in the 21st century, that would be a devastating experience to have a set that you thought was amazing and then you go and try and play it out live and it just it falls to pieces. You know, you're panicking, trying to, why is this clipping? Why is that hitting the limiter so hard? Why does this sound so terrible? You're never going to do that again. You know, from that point on, it's going to be in your head, I need everything to be a similar loudness and since so much stuff is so loud, that means it has to be loud. That's not an idiotic decision at all. That's a completely pragmatic, sensible decision for somebody who wants to be a DJ. Um, so at this point, I'm just going to, I mean, I'm kind of already on my soapbox, but I'm just going to jump a bit higher or add another stack to my pile of soapboxes and just see if there's anybody who's listening to this who is a DJ, or if you know a DJ and you've had these kind of conversations, please share this episode with them, particularly this bit of the episode, and encourage them to get on the support forums on for Pioneer, email people, you know, I mean, be polite, be friendly, but say, we want this, because it would be such a simple change. Uh, I think you said there's some new hardware coming out soon. Obviously, there's an issue with the installed hardware base 
but it seems there's probably even firmware updates that they could do to the existing CDJs. Um, it would be so amazing if, you know, the fact that this normalization is there by default to begin with, which is such a creative tool, you know, the creative flexibility of being able to mix the original mix of a tune that a modern track samples. I mean, that makes, that's exactly the kind of thing that you want to do as a creative DJ in a set. So having the flexibility to be able to do that without having to worry about all of this other stuff, it would just be so cool. So yeah, I would just like to encourage people. And the same applies. I know that there are other, you know, we're talking a lot about Pioneer because that's the hardware that's in a lot of the clubs. They have something like 60% of the market share, we think. But, you know, Serato, um, Native Instruments with Tractor, all of this stuff is so easy to do in software. And I have tried in the past reaching out to the support teams for these companies to try and engage them in a conversation about this. And they're just not interested. They're like, no, this is how it works. It has to be peak level because of clipping. There's no other, it's just going to confuse everybody if we do anything different. So yeah, I would say if you're listening to this, please get out there and start encouraging them because if they realize that there is demand from their customers, from the people who buy this software, use this hardware, that's going to motivate them to add this feature in the future. And that could just make things better for everybody. Yeah. Okay, rant over. <laughs> it's important to say as well that um, the Pioneer DJ environment ecosystem is constantly updating and like you say with firmware stuff there's stuff changing all the time so i don't personally see any reason why that couldn't be something which is included but toggled off by default and then that gain is saved uh whereas i put that on the usb to play on a nexus setup all the tracks are at the mastered level and there's nothing i can do to predetermine that it's such a tragedy that that's not how it works i mean especially i mean i can understand there would be there could be some pushback against loudness normalization you know against a computer deciding for you how loud the songs should should be um that's something you know that people don't like in the wider mastering context as well but you're absolutely right since every one of those can be tweaked i mean it would be a huge task right but if you went through your entire music library and were like okay i'm going to dial this one up dial this one down that's what i did in my ipod back in the day when i hated the way that soundcheck worked i literally gain staged every album so that I would get consistent playback levels in, in shuffle mode without having to use soundcheck, which it didn't work that well at that point. Even if that kind of manual adjustment of, oh, this, you know, like you say, for an acapella needs to be turned down a little bit, or this is an older track, so it needs to be turned up a bit, would be a huge benefit. I don't see a downside to that personally, because it just cuts down on the work you have to do as a DJ. Okay, so I think probably we've beaten that point to death. Yeah, um, yeah. But it, it is something I feel really strongly about. Um, let's move on to the the final point that was raised in Dan's video originally, and and maybe one of the ones that could be most interesting, which is this idea that certain genres need a super loud sound aesthetically, artistically. Um, it's something that I hear a lot and. Personally, I'm skeptical about it. My comment is always that, you know, the, let's talk about LUFS level. The LUFS level is not what makes the sound. If you take a Skrillex tune that was mastered at minus four and turn it down by 10 dB and play it back, all the aesthetic choices that were made to get it up to minus four LUFS in the first place are still intact. So it's not the actual loudness. And my experience is particularly when we're talking about the last two or three dBs, because, you know, really, you know, I master loud sections of my music routinely at minus 11, minus 10 LUFS. Stuff that is kind of mainstream is typically mastered at minus eight, minus seven, but even up at minus six, 
you know, it's only three or four dBs difference in loudness. And a lot of the masters that I see that are that loud actually have intersample peaks that go up to plus two, plus three. So in my head, they could have just dialed back the threshold on the limiting because I'm, you know, limiting is a, an important, heavy limiting is an important part of the sound of lots of these genres at this point to get that density and to get that the kind of the the, the pumping feeling and the just this kind of the, the flat consistency of the drum sounds and all the rest of it in my head just set the thresholds lower give yourself a little bit of peak headroom back to use creatively if you want or just have because for me at, the, at that point the limiting is technical rather than artistic so i'm super interested to hear what you know especially as, as a as a DJ and a mastering engineer who's working on this kind of material, what what your reaction to that is? Well, I think I think we differ in philosophy on loudness to an extent. Um, I'm pretty agnostic about it. I don't really, um, well, I wouldn't say I don't care. Obviously, I do care because it's my job to care. But I care more about what the artist feels on receiving or the label ever receives or feel the master more than the technicalities of. Um, downstream in sample peaks i mean i'm i'm pretty conservative within sample peaks i think some people are very gung-ho about it and i'm sure that, you know very good mastering engineers are, are gung-ho about this as well but my opinion of those things is if a, if a streaming service for example is giving you a, a guideline or a pressing plan or whatever you might as well try and hit it and still do the mad loud thing that's kind of where the skill comes in like i i do leave um you know, minus one true peak, which some people will be screaming at me for doing, and make very loud masters quite often, um, which I think still sound good. Yeah, they're 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 pretty heavily limited and soft clipped and all that kind of business. Um, but I think that's kind of the the trick. I could just turn it up by one dB and the track would be one dB louder. But I kind of feel that like there are some limitations, and the second somebody this has happened to me before a second somebody comes back to you and says oh yeah my thing's clipping um why didn't you master it properly i can't really say anything at that point so i kind of think that you can kind of get a, a, a median between uh overall headroom you know ceiling headroom uh for especially streaming you know uh, lossy encoders and that kind of business and still get the hyper loud thing you just have to kind of develop certain techniques and certain skills to do that um one example that we talked about uh, before recording is that um literally yesterday i have a record label that is a certain genre and has a certain aesthetic uh visually and sound and it's also a club night that i run and of course i have a lot of control over that i pick i pick the releases i work on the mixes with the artists and i do the mastering but it's not my music so i have quite a lot of um you know more control than most people have over this sort of stuff and uh there's two anecdotes the first anecdote is that uh, for an EP that's forthcoming on the label next week, uh, the levels are fairly average for the genre. It's a sort of um, UK garage type release, which people who don't know, that's a, a British genre of music that's sort of faster than house music, but not really fast and has an emphasis on sort of shuffle and loud bass. Those are the kind of main characteristics that make it different to other forms of dance music. And that means that you really can't go techno loud with it because techno is is uh, all electronic sounds and they have a completely different peak relationship especially peak relationship um and garage is faster and has uh 
often sustained bass. So I work on an EP for, for my label and we agreed with the client the sort of loudness that we both felt was comfortable and I sort of, you know, gave them some creative control, but I, I maintained what specs I wanted to hit. Um, and it came out really great. And, you know, it's about minus 10, maybe minus nine in the loudest bits, which is fine. You know, it sounds compressed, it sounds limited, but it sounds genre correct. It doesn't sound pumpy. It doesn't sound like it's tearing out when there's effects on and stuff like that. And then the same artist came back to me to do something for their band camp where they wanted way louder levels um, and they wanted it to be pressed and they wanted it to be pumping and sounding like it's clipping. And they wanted me as someone they trusted to give them uh, you know, some demos of how we could do it. Like I tried a soft clip, hard clip limiter version and then I tried a different soft clipper. I, I'm a, I have more soft clippers than a man could ever need um, for this sort of stuff. Um, and I gave him some control over that. And and yeah, it's it's loud. It's like minus six in the pressed bits, but it's way faster. It's all pretty much on the beat. It's, a, it's the same artist. It sounds like the same artist, but it's a different genre. And he wants different mastering for that different genre. If you were to load um, his two EPs back to back on you know Bandcamp or something like that, they would sound massively different in level, but he doesn't care because he wants that change to be obvious and also on streaming platforms it'll be normalized anyway so there are situations where you can sort of design the loudness it's not it's not something we have no control over um you can design it for aesthetic reasons and that goes into that, that idea of aesthetics versus technicality and that release still is at minus one true peak i've still given it the headroom that i think is correct um and i've just made the 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 limiting work for the sound that he wants, the loudness that he wants, and the headroom, which I think is is legitimate. I wouldn't let somebody do that on my label because I wouldn't want that sort of sound. But this is a really intense, aesthetically blown out hyperpop thing where it's like, everything's on the beat, it's constant, there's like sustained levels of pressed against the meters, and then there's like really low levels and then sudden impact. Whereas the release on my label is is all about space between the actual grooves of the drum patterns itself so there is a, an element of um of sartorial control that you can have over not just the sound but also the loudness the second anecdote is i think something that you found very um in line with some of your thoughts about dance music and, and what could be achieved the most popular release on the label is a track by a japanese artist called kaio it's called how can i live this track uh, I thought it was brilliant from the get-go. I mastered it quite loud, presuming they wanted it quite loud, and they actually told me to turn it down because they felt that the more sort of 90s aesthetic of it was being damaged by this, and the the style of build-up, which is a bit more subtle compared to the sort of like, you know, constant noise-in-your-face TikTok-style uh, build-ups you have on a lot of uh, dance music and pop music now... Um, and he was like, no, please bring it back. So it's, it's you know, it's minus 12, minus 11 sort of stuff. So it's not really pressed. And the sustained bass notes, because it's got big sustained, you know, musical info, very, very low, like a lot of British dance music has. And this is the track that has gone way beyond my expectations. This is a track that if I post it on TikTok, I get loads of people asking me what the track is. Um, I get videos sent of uh, last summer, it kind of went, around some of the big festivals. Uh, and these are the sort of situations that people would have probably put in uh, Dan's original video in the comments. Oh yeah, but I, I'm, I'm pitching for these kind of DJs, so I need it at these kind of levels. And the track that completely without any uh, pressure from me, uh, any extra promotion has been picked up by all these people that are playing on 
you know, literal rigs uh, outside in festivals, playing in fields, playing at festivals and playing in, you know, Ministry of Sound and uh, Fabric and all these big clubs in London, the kind of clubs that people, you know, will say, oh, yes, but they have a certain sound, et cetera. The, the, one, the one track on the label that has worked is probably the quietest track on the label, um, which is still fairly loud, but it's not, there's no competitive element to it. There was no point where the discussion with the artist was, we need to get this to a certain level. It's like, we need to get it to this kind of sound and it needs to load into Rekordbox. And beyond that, whatever happens, happens. And it completely worked. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I love both of those anecdotes. I particularly love the second one, and I think maybe we'll come back to it in a minute because I feel like it's a really positive note to end on because, you know, what we've been describing here, there, there's a lot of challenges in this genre and you know, in the venues of clubs that really are pushing DJs towards favouring stuff that is consistently mastered loud, you know, and I think that's I think that's the reason I wanted to do this episode is to to get more understanding out there. You know, it's another one of these issues where I think there's there's a polarization kind of building up of DJs, understandably, hopefully, for anybody who's heard what we've said on this episode, saying, but it's it needs to be loud for all of these reasons. And then at the other end, there's a bunch of people kind of going, no, that's madness. It doesn't make any sense, not really understanding the practicalities of the situation. And I think, you know, having those two camps kind of shouting insults at each other doesn't benefit anybody. Whereas if we can get more understanding into this and get lots of polite requests to software companies and hardware companies um, and more understanding of the issues, that really feels like a, a positive way forward to me. But I want to circle back to your first example there where you've got you know these, these two examples. I think it's fascinating. I think really you're describing there an ideal situation, right? Which is that you and the artist both understand exactly what's happening, what the creative implications are, and making a choice. And nobody, not me or anybody, should say that that is the wrong choice or that it's the wrong sound for either of those releases. And I think this is something that people maybe misunderstand about my philosophy, if you, if you like. I like loud music as much as the next person. I listen to a ton of really loud music and I listen to it loud. Some of my favourite albums are mastered very, very hot. That doesn't mean I don't have this sneaking suspicion that I might prefer them if they were mastered a little less hot, but I've got no way of knowing that because I've got no comparison. My concern is people feeling like they have to do something in a particular way because of this idea or this rule or because so-and-so said this or for this commercial requirement for success, you know? And I think, again, looking for positives to take away from this conversation, you know, I think from what we're saying today, it feels to me like actually club PAs have plenty of gain. Even the loudest songs probably are only talking about variations of three or four dB. And if you need enough room for headroom for effects and all the rest of it, there's probably enough space to, to match those without everything being super crushed. And also, you know, you've given an example there of a song that wasn't super loud that has been hugely successful. And just another anecdote from me is when I went onto uh, SoundCloud and pulled up the top 50 tracks on SoundCloud, the first song was indeed very loud, mastered at, I think, minus eight LUFS. Interestingly, there wasn't much that was above that, you know, for all these people kind of saying, oh, it needs to be minus six. I didn't see a ton of songs like that. But I let the, the playlist run for half an hour, 45 minutes. The second song was 12 dBs quieter than the first song. Um, and that's how it plays on SoundCloud, because currently there's no normalization there. You know, that huge discrepancy there clearly hasn't had any effect on the commercial, I don't say commercial, or the popularity of, of those songs. You know, people don't really care about loudness. So, yeah, it, I think 
if there's a situation where the mastering engineer and the artist and the label and everybody understand these trade-offs and the any decision the impact that any of these decisions might have and make that with full knowledge and kind of confidence and are happy with the artistic choices that to me is an ideal scenario the concern is all those people out there who feel that things have to be done in a certain way i have one just follow-up question for you with the um the hyperpop example you were talking about where the levels are pushing much higher do you believe if you just put in a gain stage before your final limiter or maximizer whatever it is and dialed that back by two or three db in your opinion is that going to dramatically change the aesthetic quality of that song it wouldn't change the aesthetic but it would change how it appears in context when played back on platforms without loudness normalization which i think is more what the artist was was going for Okay, so you're talking about Beatport and SoundCloud and Bandcamp. Yeah, I mean, Bandcamp is a big one because Bandcamp works in a way that's very decentralised where you'll basically open lots of tabs and then you'll click play on stuff and then you'll close the tab. And he wanted the dynamics. If anything, you could look at it this way, is that artistically he is interested in dynamics, but the dynamics are between the two releases, not between the elements of the song itself or between the song and other stuff. You know, his his choice was, yes, I do want people to feel like they're, you know, jumping out of their chair if they click onto this on on Bandcamp. That's a creative decision to be loud, um, not a not a competitive thing, not a uh, this to get signed by an A and R or all the sort of things that we talk about in the past with loudness. It is it's an artistic choice to to jump in in volume. You know, that's not a mistake. I think what one thing that I've uh, is always floating in my mind is um, I think it was when you interviewed John Greenham and a couple of other things that he's uh, discussed on, he was talking about this idea of, of confidence and the, the person who's creative feeling confident in their decisions and in their music. And I think that works two ways. It's confident in what you deliver to them, but it's also confidence about what's going to happen downstream. And that's why this sort of um, potential gain matching thing in, in record box is so interesting because it would give people the confidence to possibly do that thing you're talking about, which is, um, bring it down by a few dBs, but it might might also work the other way. They might feel that like, no, let's let's. I'm confident in the fact that I want my next release to be four dBs louder because I want people to jump out of their chair when they listen to it. As long as people are making informed decisions about loudness and and stuff, I don't, you know, and they're not feeling like you say some sort of peer pressure, um, or they've they've had some misinformation about what will happen later on. Um, down the line and that's kind of why we have these conversations is to is to put this in people's minds when they they go to make specifically mastering decisions there's no reason to do that suggestion which is to just have the release have it blown out and then have the headroom because that's not what he wants he wants it to be stupid like that's kind of that's kind of the, well, I mean, the idea that's that's interesting now i'm g- yeah i'm gonna push back on that but though because my experience i mean differences of one two three dbs people tend not to care about but, I mean, the numbers you mentioned there specifically, minus 6 and minus 10, that's 4 dB. My opinion is that song might come on, depending on how loud people were listening to the previous song, I think that's a big enough difference that people will actually be annoyed by it. I mean, clearly it's an artistic decision, right? But when I've been listening to unnormalized audio and there's a big difference in level, I adjust the volume control just because I like to listen to music loud. So if something comes in that much louder than something else. I mean, you know, it's it's a debate that we can have. And I think the other 
pushback I have against that is that, of course, people aesthetically are going to want their stuff to be louder. I mean, that's how we got into the loudness wars. You know, back in the early 90s, we didn't have this to the same degree and there was a lot more consistency between releases. And then we started getting to this point of, oh, that one pushes louder. And that, as I always say, it, it would be fine if there's no upper limit. But, you know, there is in in an analog mixer or on speakers, it's it's clipping. Um, and in a digital system, it's clipping. It's there's a I guess what I'm saying is there's a limited number of people who get to make that artistic choice before it becomes a problem for everybody else. Okay, so I'll push back against your pushback. Um, <laughs> I think the the whole point of what your the response that you were saying that you would have to that is the point. Now you might think that's counterintuitive, but then it's it's kind of goes back to that sort of like punk aesthetic of like you, it's trying to annoy you a little bit. Like you might find that annoying, and you might find that um, you know slightly pretentious or whatever, but. The fact that you go, oh, and suddenly your heart rate goes up and you have to turn your speakers down is part of the experience, um, which it might just mean that that's not for, not you personally, but the person who's listened to the music. But that that is that is the point. The point is to not have it, you know, like I say, it's the dynamic between the two releases. If one was sounding aesthetically blown out, but at the same volume, that would be like having the solo section of a, Stravinsky piece um you know the, the rights of spring or something before it kicks in and then having the next piece at the same volume but but full of tombra like this is the, the point is to have the two releases at different volumes the, the releases themselves are within a, a loudness map if you like um that's the point that I'm making it's not it's not that um it, it needs to sound heavily limited and heavily compressed on its own, it's that it needs to sound heavily limited and heavily compressed and louder than the last release. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I hear it and I get it, but I think um, that's a kind of you're talking about <laughs> Nirvana in some sense. I don't mean the band. I, I mean that seems to me uh, too unrealistic. Like for that to work, you'd need across the industry, across release all releases in an unnormalized situation, you'd need here is zero. And here is artistically where we can choose to be based around zero. But we're not in that world. You know, we're in a world where there are releases that are 10 dBs quieter and, and 10 dBs louder than that. Because the choices you're making, that's exactly the kind of thing. If I get an extreme noise core album to master, that's the decision that I'm making as a mastering engineer. You know, that is like, okay, we want this to be borderline painful. We want it to be really, in, and, and exactly where is that? There's an aesthetic decision to be made between, you know, I'm talking about two songs on the same album, right? It's like, here's one, and then this one has got to be really punishing. And as mastering engineers, we make, in collaboration with the artist, the decision about what that differential should be to have the appropriate artistic uh, effect, which I think is what you're talking about. But we can't do that in relation to everything else out there in the world because there's no standardization. So... I think you know. I don't, I don't think we necessarily have to agree on it. I think we're saying similar things, but coming at it from two different perspectives. I actually think, again, wanting to be hopeful about this, the improvements that we're seeing in normalization are going to help with this. Because to, to give an extreme example of when that doesn't work, um, you know, let's say uh, those two songs that you, you, your your examples that we're discussing went out on a compilation um, or in a playlist. And it was a 
track playlist, let's say it was mastered, so the mastering engineer made the artistic decisions in collaboration with the artists about what the relative levels between those songs should be. So we have an artistic statement, if you like, within that album or within that playlist. Currently, if that gets played in shuffle on Spotify or if those songs get uploaded individually to YouTube, they will be track normalised, which means that the artistic relationships between those will be messed with and probably destroyed. Um, whereas on Tidal currently, they use a different normalization system, which, which is to say, where is the loudest song? Okay, we're going to turn the whole album down so that that song is at a standard level. And that's your kind of world zero point, if you like. But all the other artistic decisions are then preserved. And that to me could be a situation where we get to have our cake and eat it in the sense that the artistic decision to have this song 3db louder than that song will always apply without anybody being uh you know unexpectedly blasted or just kind of constantly annoyed by having to change the levels but maybe that's me being utopian <laughs> i think yeah i mean the the whole album normalization thing and the develops developments that are going on there with streaming platforms will um will level the playing field especially between genres i think quite a lot with, with these issues at the moment. But I think the reason that we're disagreeing is that I'm seeing the context differently. The context to me is very niche. It's very specific. Whereas I think you're thinking about how these tracks would come across globally and, and you know, within across all the different platforms and stuff, which is a rational way to think about mastering, but also some things are very specific for very specific markets and they want to have a, a, a certain impact and the, especially Bandcamp, uh, for this particular artist, particular release, is what they're looking for. And to be louder and to make you want to turn your volume down, to make you jump out your seat, is kind of what they're going for. Whereas I can imagine, I mean, I might be wrong, but there's probably not going to be a situation where they're going to put their greatest hits playlist on Spotify and be disappointed by the fact that this this intentional loudness jump doesn't happen. I just, that's not that's not the, the moving target to aim for. Whereas the you know, jumping out your seat compared to the last EP thing, that is a, a a target. So I think it's a matter of context and you can only really develop those contexts by having good relationship with artists. And again, it's that thing going back to that confidence thing. He's confident that although this might seem slightly wacky, um, that's what he wants and I'm happy to go along with it. Um, one, because I'm being paid and two, because I trust him as an artist. And because you have that trust, you're able to make the decisions. But that is a that's a very specific example. Uh, the other anecdote about the the track, you know, being played on big systems and being the most popular for its sound and its impact on you know on in festivals and stuff. That's more a general point. I'm not disagreeing with you. Like I say, you're having an an informed, engaged conversation with your client and making good decisions. And and I've done the same thing. I mean, you know, there are albums in my past that are up at there are albums that are up minus seven LUFS, you know, which <laughs> some some people probably wouldn't believe that I would do, but that's because there was a conversation with the artist. Well, here are the mixes. This is how they are. This is the, this is the goal for the sound, you know? So yeah, I, I'm not talking about imposing our view on other people or, or any of that stuff, but you're right because, you know, the goal there of, oh, I want it to be this loud on, I want it to jump out on Bandcamp, that will work with his two songs in relation to each other, but it wouldn't work if it came after a noisecore track previously that was at minus four. You know, suddenly even his minus six master would sound slightly underwhelming by comparison, and there's there's no control over that. Um, 
which is why I think some form of normalization is better than no normalization because it does give us more creative, you know, some kind of creative freedom. And that's, you know, again, there are people out there who are like, don't, don't tell us how loud our music should be. And it's, that's exactly the opposite of what it does. It gives you the freedom to make your music as loud as you might like it. I would like to finish this on a positive note. And I think we've got (laughs) a ton of great positives to come out of all of that. And, and your example there um, of, you know, the song where even your initial master was actually louder than what the artist decided they wanted. And despite the fact that some people would view that as unrealistically quiet, you know, there are lots of people out there who'd say, you can't release something at minus 14 or minus 12 or whatever it is. You know, there are a ton of examples of things that have been released at those kind of levels and have been fantastically successful. And I would argue possibly even that's part of the reason that they were fantastically successful but also i'm optimistic about you know these opportunities that we have for in in the club and the dj world for things to improve it feels like allowing loudness metadata to be carried from the the performance mode from the the practice mode into a set in a club would be quite a simple technological change and could have a huge benefit um if that could also be coupled with better metering um of all points so that you know DJs could have the confidence to to play things out in the in the way that we're talking about, you know, in more of an, an ideal situation rather than just having to deal with whatever you're left with from the previous set. You know, all of that feels um, super positive to me. So, you know, I have my, my fingers crossed that things will improve. On the other hand, I also know how slowly these kind of things can happen. Joe, if you've got anything else you want to add, then I'd be very happy to hear it. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you my final thoughts. So I think... Um the genesis of this whole discussion, um, despite our original conversation just being part, you know, being uh, started by uh, Dan's video, um, who I would put on the record, I have a lot of respect for Dan. I'm not trying to argue with his uh, his points or anything like that. And um, I do watch his videos a lot to try and uh, learn how to speak quite as clearly about stuff like, especially phase, because that's quite hard to talk about when you're in the pub. And uh, someone asks you what you do for a living. Um, but... The the point is that misinformed but very strong opinions on two sides. I'm going to sound like a total hippie now, um, but also uh, the the medium in which these these comments were made. So we're talking about specifically YouTube comments here. Now the people who are commenting are on YouTube. We have no idea what their um, experience or sort of prestige is as someone who thinks they can talk about stuff but they will talk about it and you know the person who made the video will get lots of notifications about people saying the same thing over and over again and it doesn't make any of those things true um and the same can be said on the other things like like i said i I consider myself to be loudness agnostic i'm not a pro or anti-loudness guy i'm kind of like you tell me what to do you're paying me I'll, i'll do whatever you want i might make some recommendations and inform you but i won't tell you not to do it sort of thing and i think on the other side, you do get people in comments who also have this sort of like religious fervor about um, loudness and what it is and how all CDs beyond this point are ruined and blah, 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 all this stuff, which to us who actually do the engineering realize is complete nonsense. There's, there's two very extreme competing things which are both pretty outside the realms of reality. And that triggers these discussions and almost puts people into camps where they will argue about these things. And then I saw in the comments in the original thing, there was, you know, people who had uh, done sound at venues, but aren't DJs and don't really understand it. And 
there's this whole kind of thing where then the DJs will then get upset about sound people and they'll be like, these people always mess up my stuff and these DJs always ruin my my beautiful gain staging in my club. And in reality, none of this has to happen in the first place by having conversations like we've had today and trying to spread this information. You can have different, different opinions like we do about how to approach loudness as far as um, our jobs, being both being professional mastering engineers, go. But as far as what can we do to achieve good stuff for the people that matter, which is the listeners, or in the case of dance music, the dancers, because like we say, there's this functional element to dance music, which is before the artistic element, really. Um, that can all be achieved uh, with sensible, level-headed discussions. And I think one of the reasons that maybe the DJs are idiots video uh, got my back up a little bit was because I've spent my entire life trying to bring these camps together to have these sort of discussions. And every time somebody digs in on one side or the other, it makes it harder for me to have this. I understand that most DJs have a lot more knowledge of this, the stuff that the sound people or whatever are saying they don't have any idea about than you might know. And if you have a discussion with them, you know, if you go up to a DJ who's the first DJ on and say, look, here's the gain of the system. We've got a limiter like this. Um, just so you know, the booth monitors this sort of level and the, the sound system is going to be this level later on. If you wouldn't mind doing X, Y, Z, 99% of DJs are not going to be like, no, I've got my loud music and I'm going to play it. They're going to be, okay, thanks. Thanks. That really helps me because that helps me set my gain for my my first set and then that helps me pass on to the next DJ. But if you don't have these conversations in the first place, then yeah, people are just going to get very angry and you're going to see lots of red meters and you're going to see, you know, people who are in the club for three hours looking very tired because they're listening to clipping nonstop. Uh, and, you know, and the, the sound guy's in the booth drinking his cup of tea, wondering about when he can go home and the DJ's, you know, <laughs> snarling at him through the little window, which I've seen happen many times. Um, but it, none of this has to happen. That's my final thought. I love that. I think I can probably agree with almost everything you said there. So, um, Joe, thank you so much for for being a guest and having this conversation. I hope people found it useful or interesting. Please, I want to encourage people again, if if you agree with the things we're saying out on this episode, get on the forums, get on the support networks, talk to Pioneer and Serato and Native Instruments and all the people who make the software and the hardware. Let's try and encourage this move in the space and yeah, let's all have uh, great, polite conversations with each other about this stuff so that everybody understands it better and can uh, do more positive going forwards. So, Joe, thanks so much for being on the episode. Thank you for having me. I think there's a ton of great stuff there that people will find really helpful and interesting. I think there's a lot of nuance to that conversation, which I think is really important. Um, if people want to find out more about you and what you do, uh, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, JoeKathmessMastering.com. If you're interested in like technical stuff and stuff that I work on and, and you know thoughts I have, I tend to post stories and reels and stuff about new mastering technology and, and things that I've worked on which are interesting and unique. Um, so that's probably the best place to, to keep up with me and feel free to send me any messages. Uh, I do tend to just, if I'm board in the studio make a quick little video about some sort of thing and then you know have have a chat with uh students mixing engineers other mastering engineers uh, so i'm always happy to to discuss this or anything else that you can see on my my presence or anything that i've worked on so yeah don't be a stranger get me on instagram or you can get me at contact at jokefsmastering.com fantastic thanks again thanks so much and for anybody who's listening we will put all of the links to this plus other relevant information on the show notes at the mastering show 
podcast.com if you want to check that out. If you enjoyed the episode and think other people will enjoy it, please pass this episode on to other people you think who might like it. Thanks to Kaylee Law for letting us use his music. Thanks to John for editing the episode as always. And thanks for listening.